Hello and welcome back to the Blue Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. And today we're looking at the tragedy that was the life of Nicias. Smack in the middle of the Peloponnesian War when the Athenians' pride takes them from bad to worse. So Plutarch jumps in by reminding us of our parallel. A parallel with a Roman who also had a bad end. That is, he ended in death far away from his homeland. And not just death, but defeat. Nicias and Crassus both attack an enemy confident that they can win. Well, we'll, uh, we'll talk about Nicias's actual thoughts on whether or not they can win. But Crassus is definitely overconfident when he attacks the Parthians, convinced that at 63 or 65 years of age he can take them on. And he fails miserably, and the Parthians are proud to have defeated the Romans. So Nicias, though, is not fighting Parthians. He's fighting fellow Greeks, Greeks on the island of Sicily. And that is really the focus of the last half of this life, what is often called the Sicilian Expedition, but could just as easily be called the Sicilian Disaster when the story is told from the perspective of the Athenians, as it will be here. And as Plutarch reminds us, it is the greatest conflict between Greeks that the world had yet seen. But we need to focus on Nicias. We've lost Pericles, we've gotten involved in this war, and there's been a plague. But what is the leadership that rises in the vacuum that Pericles leaves? Well, it's not as great as Pericles was. But Nicias is close, and both Aristotle and Plutarch agree that Nicias was one of the best citizens Athens had at the time. Though, as we'll see, he doesn't measure up. So if Pericles had piety and eloquence on his side, it seems like Nicias doesn't have that. He has wealth. That's good. And he's naturally cautious, but we'll see that that turns against him. And his piety is probably too strong, what Plutarch would call superstition or desidaimonia, which is too much fear of the daimones, of the, of the lesser gods who are in control of the world around you. So his wealth is certainly works for his advantage. And what does he do early on to break into the public sphere, so to speak? He puts on lavish choral and gymnastic exhibitions for the Athenians. We've talked several times now about these Athenian festivals and how they're an important part for all the male citizens to partake in the Athenian democracy. And so the wealthy were expected to furnish the clothing and often the food and the sets and the particular armaments that would be used in these festivals. And Nicias is just wildly generous in these festival celebrations. He's so wildly generous that at one point he finds out that one of his slaves has dressed like Dionysus during a festival to Dionysus and in joy for that slave honoring the gods so well, he just sets him free right there. Hmm. There's another point where he sets up a choral competition on the island of Delos, and he there's this little 
smaller island off the coast, and he builds this bridge of boats that he has his entire choral ensemble march over at sunrise while singing to like welcome in this festival to Apollo. So he's definitely one for the showiness, and he's willing to pay for all of it. But this extreme piety, Plutarch sees as an extreme, not the mean between the extremes, so it's not really a virtue. It heads off over the cliff into the excess of vice. He sacrifices every single day to the gods. He keeps a prophet in his household, sort of on his person, to consult him not only for public but also for private matters. And he seems to be one of those Athenians who was personally made wealthier by the discovery of those silver mines. So perhaps many of the silver mines discovered in Attica were discovered on lands that Nicias's family owned. He tries to remain aloof. So this is another thing he has in common with Pericles. He tries to remain aloof, but it doesn't seem to work as well for him as it did for Pericles. He ends up looking afraid. He ends up looking like a coward. So his friends have to run interference for him at his own front door. He has a friend named Hero. Basically, his job is to run the rumor mill and explain to everybody, oh, Nicias just looks tired and he doesn't want to talk to you because of how hard he's been working for Athens. He uses these stories to explain why Nicias seems standoffish or aloof. And Nicias really is aloof of a lot of the effects of the Peloponnesian War in the first 10 years. So just a reminder, right, 432, the war starts by 429, plague is ravaging all the people and Pericles is dying and Nicias doesn't catch the plague. We don't hear much about Nicias during the time of the plague. And then Athens has some ups and downs in the Peloponnesian War in that first 10-year period between 432 and 422. Nicias, luckily, is involved in almost all of the ups and none of the downs. So when he serves as general, he's able to put down a revolt in Thrace. He's able to take an island from the Megarians and capture a couple cities. He even is able to march against the Corinthians and defeat them, killing their general in battle. There's a little bit of an awkwardness there where he doesn't set up the trophy and he doesn't collect all the dead bodies. So he kind of has to admit defeat on a technicality because once he realizes that he hasn't buried two Athenians and he needs to go back, the fact that he needs to ask the Corinthians' permission to gather those bodies means that he essentially forfeits his rights to set up a trophy and claim victory. So there's a little bit of a technicality, maybe lucky, unlucky, right? But when you compare him to some of the other things that are happening in this period, where Demosthenes, for example, is on the island of uh, Sphacteria near Pylos. So remember the Athenian strategy, if they're going to follow Pericles' strategy, which they try to do in the first 10 years, is to do these naval raids on the edges of the Peloponnesus, on the edges of Spartan land, rather than trying to attack Sparta itself, because Sparta is too far inland and has too much infantry force for the Athenians to be able to conquer. But if they're near their ships and they're near their supplies and it's this sort of marine maneuver, then perhaps they can do it. So Demosthenes, not the famous Demosthenes of 100 years later or 75 years later, under Alexander the Great. There's just another guy named Demosthenes in this life, and he's kind of important, so I need to mention him by name, and I hope I don't confuse you with the Alexander the Great Demosthenes. But anyway, Demosthenes is in charge of these, and he manages to cut off a section of Spartans. There's two other rivals involved here, 
and they are Athenian, right? Cleon rejects an, any embassy with the Spartans. So when the, with the Spartans being cut off, they're, they're willing to negotiate. They don't want to lose this many Spartan male citizens because these aren't just Lacedaemonians. These aren't just helots. These are actual Spartan men in danger of being slaughtered to the last man. Nicias is angry that Cleon rejects the, the embassy of the Spartans because Nicias is going to be the guy who from 432 onward is fighting for peace more than anything. But then when Cleon blames Nicias and they're sort of squabbling amongst each other, the Athenians just demand that Cleon go and take over the control of the Battle of Pylos. And Nicias resigns his command. He was a co-commander with Demosthenes, willing to talk with the Spartans. So Cleon tries to change his mind, but they send him anyway. They sort of force him to go by voting him into place. That's a theme that we'll see come up later. And Cleon manages to go back and succeed. So it's almost like the rise of Cleon, Cleon reaching his height, is in part because of Nicias stepping out of the way. We're going to see Nicias steps out of the way and develops this reputation of, it's a very mixed reputation. He has a reputation of being wise or a wise planner, wise strategist, but also being a delayer and a loiterer. Uh, I'll put in the show notes some quotes from the famous playwright Aristophanes who wrote comedies, and he basically uses several different lines in several different plays to throw Nicias under the bus in one way or another. I'll just give a few here. In a play called The Birds, complimenting somebody, I think it can be taken as a compliment, although I, I was reading it in context, and I think this could also be taken as an insult too. But one bird says to another, you're a great general, even greater than Nicias, where stratagem is concerned, or strategy. So particularly Nicias's strength, according to the people, is strategy. But later on, another character says to somebody, by Zeus, it's no longer the time to delay and loiter like Nicias. Let's act promptly. So this is, that play was actually put on in the first year of the Sicilian expedition. So before Nicias had really cemented his reputation uh, in the uh, tragic expedition that ends his life. But it's just before that. So Aristophanes is sort of a prophet there. And then it seems that Nicias being soft-spoken or sometimes being unwilling to stand up and defend himself in court with quite the same verve and gusto as somebody like Cleon or Alcibiades, who were known for being loud and emotional rhetoricians. Uh, Aristophanes has a line in the Knights where a character called the Sausage Seller is said he is ready, once he's eaten enough, to bellow louder than all orators and to terrify Nicias, which probably would immediately put in the minds of the Athenians that image of Cleon bellowing in front of the assembly and Nicias sort of cowering in the, under the force of Cleon's rhetoric. So though Nicias may not have been the most bold orator or speaker, it seems that he did have a number of skills that he brought to the table. And Cleon and Brasidas are two generals that die up in a battle in the northwest Aegean at Amphipolis. And when these men are out of the way, it actually gives Nicias the ability to start negotiating for a peace with the Spartans. All he has to do is convince the Athenians to want it. And there seems to be a generational divide about this war. Those young men who have been growing up in this war, you were eight, right, when this war started. So in 422, you're now 18. You're old enough to serve as a hoplite. 
Maybe you're chomping at the bit to get some glory. It seems like the young men are the ones that want the war. And the old men and those that own land and those that farm, they are the ones that don't want the war. So Nicias had already arranged for an armistice, and he uses the armistice to give people a taste of what peace feels like. And he's so associated with the peace once it has been arranged that it's called the peace of Nicias, even in his own lifetime. We're used to those, those titles being given after the fact. Things like the Byzantines being called the Byzantines when really they called themselves the Romans the whole time. Or the Golden Age of Athens, really not called golden during its own moments, although they probably thought they were living some, during some pretty impressive times. But really labeled that afterwards. You know, nobody in the Middle Ages thought they were in the middle of something. They just thought they were in the present. But it is cool to know that the Peace of Nicias is so named from the moment that it is established. And in the middle of the Peace of Nicias, we see our next life rise, which is Alcibiades is one of these young men chomping at the bit for war and the glory that it brings. And he seems to rise in the midst of this peace and create as much havoc as he possibly can to try to bring Athens back into war. He's going into the assembly and pointing out everything that the Spartans are doing wrong against their treaty. He's calling, he's putting together men and even riling up allies of the Spartans and riling up allies of the Athenians, really anybody who will listen to him. And eventually he is elected general and brings Athens back into the war by convincing certain poleis to defect from Sparta and join the Athenians, particularly in the Peloponnesus. So while strategically that's an advantage if the Athenians wanted to go back to war, it's questionable what Nicias thinks about this. And now he has a new rival, right? Cleon, his old rival, had died in, in the Battle of Amphipolis, and now there's this young upstart rival. And really, the Athenians grow sick of both of them, at least as Plutarch tells the story, they don't like Alcibiades' boldness and way of living. We'll talk a lot more about his way of living, but he's one of those people that likes to be talked about, so he does the shocking thing just to be shocking. And they're really jealous of Nicias' wealth and annoyed, like they were with Pericles, by his aloofness. He seems to act better than everybody else, but more importantly, he so often just resists the people in what they want. And so this really is a personalization or an instantiation of the generational gap between those who want war and those who don't. And we probably can see what's coming, right? There's two men. They're both getting power. And the democracy has this tool that they use when men get too powerful. We've seen it used against Aristides. We've seen it used against Chemon. They probably would have used it against Pericles eventually. So what happens? That's right ostracism. So who's going to be ostracized? Is it going to be Nicias? Is it going to be Alcibiades? This is where we get thrown for a loop. Nicias and Alcibiades can't agree on much, but they do agree that somebody else needs to be ostracized and not either one of them. So they manage to make the person who gets the right number of votes, remember it needs to be at least 6,000 people need to vote, and then it's the person with the most votes out of that 6,000. So hyperbolous this random guy nobody's ever heard of and becomes in this story here, is ostracized in 417 BC. He's ostracized and the Athenians are so annoyed with themselves that somebody who isn't even that important is ostracized because the whole point of ostracism was to take the those who were too proud or too close to tyranny 
and to teach them a lesson. But this isn't, this isn't even what happened. We didn't even teach them a lesson. Come on. So they get so annoyed that in 417 BC with the ostracism of hyperbolus, it's the last ostracism that the Athenians ever commit. And so the first one is around 488. And so the entirety of the ostracisms are done in about a 70-year period. They reach their height and peter out just because the Athenians sort of get sick of their own ability to just banish somebody for 10 years. So at this point, we see that Nicias and Alcibiades are both safe from ostracism, but they're not safe from each other's political rivalry. The Athenians, once they launch back into the war, they have this problem of greed, of never knowing their limits. And remember, Pericles told them, know your limits. Don't fight land battles. Don't try to expand the empire. Keep what you have. You know, don't go beyond your means. And there's a Greek word for this kind of greed, consumerism, or always wanting more, and it's pleonexia. And it is a key word in Themistocles, who tells the first half of this same story. Themistocles' narrative ends shortly after the Sicilian expedition, and then Xenophon picks up and tells the rest of the story. But Plutarch's tracking closely with both of these authors, and even tells us that he's not going to retell the story as Thucydides told it. He really wants us to just understand the character of the men involved, and Nicias is one of those men. So Nicias is not the right kind of religious, but Plutarch is religious. So he gives us all of the signs that the gods gave the Athenians that the Sicilian expedition should not happen. So Alcibiades hires some people to go to the shrine of Amon, which is almost as important as the shrine of Delphi, certainly to the Egyptians it is, uh, because it's in Egypt, to get an oracle about Syracuse, which is the polis in Sicily that the Athenians have now set their sights on. It's wealthy, it's powerful, it's in the western Mediterranean, it would massively expand their empire, their influence, and their reach. And the people that Alcibiades sends out come back with a message from the shrine of Amon in Egypt saying that the oracle has declared that the, Th the Athenians will capture all of the Syracuse. So that seems like a good sign. Put that in the balance. But then at Delphi, ravens come onto this bronze palm tree and pick off the th fruit and throw it on the ground. On the day that everyone leaves for the Sicilian expedition, we're jumping ahead here a little bit, but all of the statues of Hermes, the public statues of Hermes at the crossroads, are defaced in it, or vandalized in a single night. All but one, actually. And that becomes an important detail as well. An astronomer, who at the same time was also someone who may have tried to read the stars, so an astrologer, right? Not a huge difference there. Sets his house on fire. And Plutarch gives us two reasons that he may have burned his own house down. One, it could have been madness. Seems like a valid explanation. And the other could have been desperation. But either way, he uses the loss of his house to beg for the ability for his son to be taken off the expedition. That's important. Socrates, yes, that Socrates, is alive and walking the streets of Athens at this time. It's about 20 years before he's sentenced to death. He's warned by his daimon, by his little guardian creature thing, lesser god, that he talks about in the Apology. He does not publicly say anything but he's warned that this expedition will ruin the city and he tells friends in private. However, as Virgil reminds us, Fama Wolot, rumor flies. And so it does, even with Socrates' rumor. And the last thing is, as the fleet leaves, 
It turns out that many of the women in the city are celebrating the festival of Adonis. That would, could be fine, except that the festival involves a young man, Adonis, who dies too soon, dies in the bloom of youth, as they send off the bloom of youth. And the festival really involves lamenting the death of this young man. So it is a festival of mourning the loss of young men who die too soon. Hmm. Doesn't seem like a good omen. In Thucydides, this is covered in more in depth, but Nicias and Alcibiades have a public fight in the assembly about whether or not they should go and attack Sicily. They're asked, like they like usually happens, by some little kids on or some little poleis on Sicily that don't like being pushed around by Syracuse, who's the big kid on the block. And they send an embassy to Athens and ask for help in fighting Syracuse and promise to aid them. Nicias says, doesn't matter too far away, we shouldn't care. Alcibiades is like, awesome, this is a great plan. And for whatever reason, and this is a good reason to read Thucydides, the Athenians get so fired up by this idea that they don't even see Syracuse as the end anymore. They see it as this launching off of the Western Empire for the Athenians. You know, first Syracuse, then all of Sicily, and then maybe they'll go up the Italian peninsula or out down to Africa and conquer Carthage, and they're all drawing pictures of Sicily in the sand and you know, talking about what they'll get and how much gold there is and how much wheat there is and what they'll have access to. And so it's really crazy. Um, nonetheless, they... <laughs> They vote to go to war. Nicias continues to oppose them. He's like, okay, I was opposed to this war. I'm also opposed still to this war. Like, It's great that you've all voted for it. I'm still trying to convince you not to go. And as he continues to oppose them, they elect three men as generals. Nicias, Alcibiades, and a guy named Lamachus. Nothing he says can convince the Athenians not to be involved in this. But they take comfort in the fact that, well, we'll take... Alcibiades' boldness and Lamachus's roughness and Nicias's caution, and we'll blend them all together, and they'll be perfectly balanced powers that'll help us win this war. And all three generals are given independent powers of each other. So it's not like they each take one day where you have to listen to that general on that day. They're really given independent powers, although you could see maybe that if two ganged up on one, you may be able to get something done. But we will see that it goes really badly. So they've set out. It's the biggest expedition of ships and men that they have ever gotten together. And they go off under those sad, sad circumstances, as we talked about, signs from the gods. And as they approach, they all have a different plan. Lamachus wants to just straight up attack Syracuse immediately. This may not have been a bad plan in hindsight because they did have the element of surprise or relative surprise, where the Syracusans just weren't ready. Alcibiades' plan is to pick off the allies of Syracuse and then march on Syracuse because that means that you won't be surprised by anybody flanking you or coming from behind. And Nicias just wants to circumnavigate the island, get the lay of the land, and show a display of force, which is about the worst thing he could possibly choose to do at this point. Obviously, we're speaking in hindsight, but still, this works out horribly. It gives the Syracusans time to 
find allies and to increase their allies to get more supplies to stock up supplies in the city and to basically stock up all of their defenses in their harbor and along their walls. In the meantime, Alcibiades, who has barely just arrived, gets close enough to reconnoiter. He captures an enemy ship that has the tablets of all the names of the Syracusan citizens so that they can take role for their military to enroll people in the military. Uh Uh-oh, this seems to fulfill the prophecy that Alcibiades had received from the Oracle of Ammon. Maybe this is how the Athenians will capture all of the Syracusans, which is not what they intended and not a good sign. But then shortly after that, Alcibiades is recalled to Athens for trial because he is thought to be one of the ones who defaced those statues of Hermes the night before the expedition left. And of course, as we'll see in Alcibiades' life, he's not going to go stand trial, so he runs away. And he actually runs away to Sparta. But that's for a different life, a much more hilarious and sad life all at the same time. Nicias is just sad. We left the hilarity behind with the Aristophanes quotes. So the number of names, though, on this list that they capture is distressingly large. And they start to realize that the size of the Syracusan army and navy even before the Syracusans get any allies, is much larger a force to be reckoned with than they had been reckoning when they were all drawing pictures in the sand of Syracuse. And it seemed so cute and small, like the Athenian Empire would just snuff it out like a candle. No, not going to happen. So Alcibiades exits. Uh, Nicias is now basically in sole command because Lamachus apparently is always going to defer to him as the elder general. And while Lamachus is brave in battle, he's fairly petty as a strategist. And we all know Nicias already had the reputation for being a strategist. There's even a point at which Sophocles, yes, that Sophocles, defers to Nicias as the most senior general, even though he's not the oldest man in the room. Sophocles was. So Sophocles defers to Nicias, Lamachus defers to Nicias, okay? Lamachus listens to Nicias. They sail a good way around Sicily. They basically waste a bunch of time and do a little, a few little things that don't matter much. So now the summer of the first year of the campaign, 415, they would have sailed out in the spring, ends. Okay, The Syracusans have now had several months to increase the strength of their harbor and their walls. And Nicias now sets up camp near the Syracusan harbor and tries to take control of the whole thing. He needs this advantage because the one thing that the Athenians could not bring with them on an expedition from Athens to Sicily is cavalry. And the Syracusans obviously have their own horses there, and so they're going to always have that advantage. We're going to see time and again that Nicias wishes he could have had cavalry. But if he keeps it as a marine invasion and takes some of those lessons that they learned at Pylos and Sphacteria, yes, I realize that sounds like bacteria, I'm sorry. If he takes some of those lessons and keeps them close, then he has a chance at starving out Syracuse, which is eventually what he's going to try to do. Right now, the Syracusans are freaking out, man, though, because they take their normal way of running the army, which is 15 elected generals. Seems a little bit like overkill. And they narrow it down to three so that they can get a plan in place faster. But at this point now, a whole year has gone by. 
Very little has happened. Nikias blows another opportunity to get a lot of supplies in terms of gold and silver because he takes a, a temple dedicated to the Olympians and he does not take the gold and silver from it, partly because he's worried about a sacrilege. And so he wastes the opportunity. The Syracusans are able to take back the temple and Nikias has to overwinter nearby Syracuse, but unable to have really shown anything for the year of campaigning that he has already done in the area. So nothing happens over the winter, apparently, in uh, ancient Greek warfare. So in the spring of the next year, he actually, Nicias starts with a positive good. He's able to push the Syracusans back far enough into their city that in spite of the difficult terrain and the fact that Syracuse is basically the same size physically as Athens, he begins to build a wall around Syracuse, and this is now his plan. We're going to besiege the polis of Syracuse until they're willing to negotiate and surrender, and he almost completes it. But it's at this point that we realize that Nicias has more going on. He seems to have a debilitating and extremely painful disease of the kidneys. I don't know if it's kidney stones or something worse, not only because I'm not a doctor, but because we almost certainly don't have enough information from Plutarch to know. But either way, we can feel bad for this guy because he's in extreme pain for most of the rest of this campaign. And it, even Plutarch is saying it's admirable what he did accomplish, even if he didn't finish it. So there's a number of engagements with the Syracusans, and the Athenians win a lot of them. Unfortunately, in one of those, Lamachus basically singles out another general for one-on-one combat, and they both kill each other. So now Lamachus is dead. Nicias went from being the de jure sole general to being the de facto sole general. The Syracusans also don't return Lamachus's body and armor. They actually immediately turn, once Lamachus has died, his men fall back, and the, the Syracusans fall on Nicias's position, and Nicias has to get out of bed and, like, set fire to the wood that he's put in place because they were going to build siege engines with it and run out of town, right? Now, at this point, his allies are still increasing. He still has some good things that he can look to. Shipments of grain are still coming in. They can still feed everybody that he's with. And there's these proposals for a treaty that are already leaking out of Syracuse. One of the things the Syracusans asked for in the first year of the war is they sent a message to Sparta, and they said, Sparta, send us a general. We need someone to handle our strategy. By the way, strategy, the Greek word for general, is strategos, which really just means the agos, the leader of a stratia, of an army. But it is where we get that word strategy. So there is an understanding that the coach matters, sometimes even more than the players. So yes, we're all playing this hoplite warfare battle. We all play with the same cavalry, but the Spartans just know what to do sometimes. And Guy Lippis is the guy that is sent over to be the Spartan general. But at this point, he's arriving in the middle of the year, and he's looking and sort of biding his time because he thinks, wow, they might have uh, come to terms by the time I even arrive. But Nicias is so blinded by some of the good things that are happening, the shipments of grain and the increase of allies, 
that Gylippus is able to sail straight through Nicias's blockade of the Syracusan harbor without even noticing. And as the siege wall nears completion, the Syracusans are, of course, meeting to discuss terms of peace because they want to be able to negotiate from a position of strength rather than from a position of weakness. But once Gylippus arrives, he really turns the tide. There's a Corinthian in charge of the fleet named Gongolus. Yeah, didn't make that up. Pretty sure that's not how you pronounce it, but I'm going with it. And he also, when Gongolus arrives, he brings a larger navy of reinforcements. So he, Or he brings naval reinforcements. So Gongolus and Gylippus now are increasing the Syracusan side of the balance sheet. And Nicias has to act like one Spartan or one Corinthian leader don't really make a huge difference. The Athenians do hold in mind, and probably say out loud to the Spartans, that they did ransom 300 Spartan citizens back after Pylos, which was an embarrassing loss for the Spartans. The Sicilians have their own things to worry about with Gylippus. It turns out Gylippus is going to be greedy, and that'll matter couple lives from now when we do the life of Lysander and we see the Spartans back on top again. But um, Gylippus manages to be able to go around to the other cities and convince them to remain allies of Syracuse. So a lot of the defections that were happening early on in the year stop happening because Gylippus is able to staunch the blood flow, so to speak. So at this point, Nicias has to write to Athens for more aid, or he asks them also, hey, recall me, because I'm sick, and this hurts, and it's painful. Please help. Seriously. Thank you. And the Athenians just send out Demosthenes. Yes, that same Demosthenes who was at the Battle of Pylos. They send a smaller and faster contingent with some money and supplies, and two more colleagues for Nicias, but Demosthenes sort of arrives with the bigger stuff, And the plan is for him to arrive in the last year. So we started this thing in 415. 414 has gone by. And then 413 is when Demosthenes will arrive, BC. But 413, oh, it's going to be a rough year. So one of the first things is that Nicias wins at sea but loses access to a key promontory or a key... uh, I'll put in the show notes a map of the harbor of Syracuse, which is really cool and is a natural harbor that is pretty easy to defend both from land and sea, but it has a narrow mouth like a harbor should, easier to control, and two spits of land that come out and uh, end up being really important to control if you want to control access to the Syracusan port. He loses access to one of those, and thus he loses access to a good place to put his supplies And now the Athenians are really exposed to attack from a lot of different directions. Nicias does not want to fight at sea, but his new colleagues who've just arrived want to accomplish something before Demosthenes gets here. And they force a battle and they lose. Mm. So then Demosthenes arrives in midsummer of 413, and he arrives with 5,000 hoplites, 3,000 slingers, and 73 more ships. So clearly the Athenians had not brought their full navy or are able to make a much larger navy in a very short amount of time. But Nicias refuses to let Demosthenes attack immediately. He thought delay would work against the enemy and that he was already in secret communication with people inside the walls. 
And any moment now, they were going to come out and start negotiating for peace. The other generals just think he's a coward and that he's taking a golden opportunity and flushing it. So they actually overrule him. They three against one. They outvote him and they carry the day. So Demosthenes attacks another strategic promontory, not the same one that Nicias had lost. And he defeats the enemy, but they snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. But it's not entirely their fault. The main thing that happens is that they're fighting at night, and the way that the moonlight falls upon them means that their enemies can see them more easily, and they just see the giant shadows of their enemies and don't see their faces. So it's really hard for them to tell who's the good guys and who's the bad guys, who's on their team. So total chaos breaks out. And then on top of that, the shadows that the moon casts when it isn't covered by the clouds, which it is sometimes. So sometimes you're in complete darkness and sometimes there's the moon behind the backs of your enemy lighting up your face, but not theirs, which as you can imagine, turns into an unmitigated disaster. Pretty much every man's killed either by the enemy or by his friends or by falling off a cliff. Because remember, these are key promontories controlling access to the sea so we're fighting very close to the ocean or they're cleaned up in the morning by the cavalry so 2,000 probably many of whom had just arrived are dead by the morning and Nicias accuses Demosthenes of hastiness and Demosthenes starts talking about retreat already he just got here but fall is approaching the camp which is surrounded by water which is Stagnant is becoming unhealthy. But it seems that Nicias, this is Plutarch's guess, fears the Athenians more than the Syracusans. Remember how afraid he was of engaging with the Athenians because he didn't want to end up ostracized. So here, too, the fear of the Athenians plays an important role. Demosthenes gives in. And the other three generals think that Nicias must know something now, right? So they all band together and are like, fine, we'll listen to you. Meanwhile, a fresh army arrives to support Syracuse. Another allied army arrives. So Nicias does at least move their camp. Then there's a lunar eclipse. As we know from the last life, Anaxagoras taught Pericles exactly how these worked. But not everybody knew that. And Nicias is a superstitious man so this is unsettling for the whole army and even its leadership and Plutarch goes on a little bit of a (laughs) distraction here where he talks about how men don't trust the natural philosophers because they see them as visionaries who are trying to limit divine agency in our lives So Anaxagoras was imprisoned, Protagoras was exiled, and Socrates died for philosophy, right? Um, Plato manages to open up philosophy to more men. I guess he made it more popular, more accessible. This is Plutarch's argument. Uh, And Dion, who is a life will do early next year, end of this year, one of Plato's students is a life that Plutarch does to show the effect of philosophy on leaders, on good leaders, and their attempt to become good leaders. 
And Dion is actually paralleled with Brutus, another one who attempts to overthrow a tyrant of sorts. Uh, but they're both, both men are heavily influenced by the philosophers who teach them. For Dion, it's Plato. And for Brutus, it's almost the entire Greek tradition of philosophy, particularly Stoicism. Uh, but Nicias doesn't have his soothsayer anymore at this point, right? So he, he sees the lunar eclipse and he doesn't have his personal soothsayer, his personal prophet, because he had died earlier. So now he just freaks out? I don't know. Nicias persuades everyone to... What does Nicias do? When times are tough, you wait it out because obviously waiting is going <laughs> to make clear what the solution is. So because there was a lunar eclipse, he convinces everyone to wait for a lunar month of 28 days. Okay, that's really overcautious, right? But in this amount of time, obviously the Syracusans are able to surround the Athenian camp by land and by sea. And Nicias is sacrificing to the gods constantly since the eclipse. So almost every boat that the Syracusans own now is being used. The soldiers are even demanding what their generals should do as Nicias sits around and waits. The soldiers say, uh, you need to lead us on an escape. Like, we're fine with retreating, but we need a leader to lead us on retreat. So Nicias does finally give in probably 28 days later, and puts the best of his infantry and his javelin men on 110 triremes. So they still have plenty of ships. And any others that they do have don't have enough oars to be rowed. So they have more than 110 ships. They just don't have enough oars to row them all. He abandons the camp. And when the Syracusans arrive back inside of the camp, they immediately sacrifice to Heracles. And as they're sacrificing to Heracles... Their own soothsayers call for a splendid victory as long as they fight like Heracles did, which we remember from the life of Theseus, that in general, the heroes' jobs were to make Greece safe for civilization. And so they don't attack anyone unless he's acting in an uncivilized manner. That is to say, they defend the weak. So that's exactly what Plutarch says the Syracusans have to do now, they have to act like Heracles acted and defend and not attack. They can't be belligerent. They have to defend Syracuse, and they will end up okay. Here, the Corinthian captain does die while leading the Syracusans, and the Syracusan boats are heavier and clumsier. But in general, this is just a difficult battle. The Athenian ships are light and nimble, so they rock a lot more, and it's hard to throw javelins and arrows accurately from a rocking boat. So... What do we end up with? We end up with the Syracusans basically winning, even though they lose their captain. And the Athenians now can't escape by sea because the Syracusans basically destroy the Athenian navy as they win, or at least what's left of the Athenian navy that still had access to oars. Cool. So the Syracusans at this time are already celebrating victory which would have given the Athenians time, right? If, if the Syracusans are partying and drinking and toasting and telling stories about the day's battle, why aren't the Athenians using this time to withdraw and start their retreat? I guess because things have gone badly at night? No, because Gylippus despairs of, of the, his ability to pull them out of this party and get them back into action until tomorrow morning. So he sends a message to Nicias, lying, 
and telling him that the Syracusans already control the path of retreat and have set traps along it. Nicias believes the message and doesn't move. But the Syracusans, those that can wake up the next morning, set out at daybreak to set ambushes on the road, cut down bridges, post their cavalry in open fields, which is probably not fun being a fatigued infantryman who just gets run down by cavalry in an open field, right? And the Athenians wait for another day and night. Again, this is Nicias being overcautious, but cautious of what? Like, you just need to start your retreat, man. I don't know. Sorry if I sound frustrated with Nicias. I probably wouldn't have done any better myself. But Nicias really is, at this point, a tragic character who, remember, he didn't want this war. He didn't want this battle. He was positive they couldn't win it. And then he fulfills his own prophecy, so to speak, right here. But he's even more pitiful because they're all hungry. They're, he, on top of that, has this kidney sickness. And he's lacked almost all of the comforts that he would have been used to as a general. He doesn't have a separate tent anymore. He doesn't have a, you know, most of his um, entourage that would have followed him around and helped him out and allowed him to do a few things more easily. They're all gone. I mean, he's basically just like them, but he's in charge. And so... Uh, he endures and persists for the lives of his men. He's really just trying to get his men home alive, like an Ernest Shackleton moment, if you know that story about the South Pole. If you don't, that's a really awesome story, and it's much more uplifting than this story, because Nicias wants to be like Ernest Shackleton, but does not succeed in doing what Shackleton did in the South Pole. So they also remembered that Nicias had all of these arguments against this expedition, and so even his men do feel sorry for him. Though, the flip side of this coin is that if a pious man like Nicias, who sacrifices to the gods every day, can be abandoned by the gods and left in such a state, who wants to have faith in the gods? And the answer is, not any of these soldiers. These soldiers who begin their long retreat— Nicias manages to keep his forces together and retreating for eight days in spite of the fact that the enemy is continuously harassing them on the roads, at the bridge crossings, in the open fields. Demosthenes tries to kill himself, but doesn't succeed. Nicias tries to negotiate with Gylippus for a truce allowing the Athenians to leave. Little too late, Gylippus had actually given them that opportunity right when he arrived. He said, we'll give you safe passage home if you just leave now, but... That was a year and a half ago. So uh, the Syracusans can boldly reject because they see the writing on the wall. The Athenians are losing. They're losing and trying to run away. Finally, they reach this river, Asinarius, or Asinarius, and they can't cross it. They're thirsty. They're exhausted. They, they pretty much can't cross the river because the river's too strong. And so they all get picked off man by man by the infantry that Gylippus unleashes on them. Nicias is basically begging for mercy, asking them to actually take Athenians as captive. Gylippus finally relents and sends the command to take the remaining men alive, but it seems like fewer are spared than slain. Like It's just easier to kill them at this point, is perhaps what the Syracusans think. The prisoners are lined up, the armor that's captured is hung from the trees, and they pretty much start a victory parade right there and march all the way back to Syracuse dedicating a festival day to the river Asinaris, where the Athenians were captured, 
as the you know, the day of Nicias's capture. So the Syracusans also discuss what to do with the Athenians. Do we sell them into slavery? Do we put the freemen and the other Sicilians in the stone quarries? Should the, just the generals be put to death? What, what should we do? Gylippus actually requests, he's like, hey, I was a pretty good general for you. Why don't you just give me the Athenian generals as a prize? Probably to put the Athenians in his debt, or maybe even because Gylippus is a decent man, he wants to some way thank Nicias and Demosthenes, both of whom were at Pylos, right, who were the victorious generals, or two of the victorious generals at Pylos, for sparing the lives of so many Spartans when they did uh, on that battle. But the Syracusans are just annoyed at Gylippus's, like, Spartan style and leadership and life, and they're like, yeah, 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 you did your job, go home, right? We're going to do our job now. And so uh, Gylippus can go home and show up later in the story, uh, in Lysander's story, which he will, right? But now we're not sure how Demosthenes and Nicias really make their end. Some authors say that they're put to death, some, Timaeus, who is a Syracusan and who was there, claims that they killed themselves before the Syracusans had completed their assembly and the prisoners threw their bodies out in the open. So, I don't know. There's still a shield in Syracuse that belongs to Nicias. And then the end is about as tragic as it can be with the last Greek tragedian mentioned even, where most of the Athenians are sold into the slavery of the stone quarries some are taken out of the stone quarries and sold into just general slavery, or they pretended to be slaves to escape. Some of them are branded on their forehead with the mark of a horse. And the only salvation that some get is because the Sicilians loved the poetry of Euripides. Euripides, the Athenian tragedian who's still alive at this point and active in Athens, Enough of these Athenians have memorized his lines of poetry that if they share them with their conquerors, the Sicilians will actually sometimes give them food and sometimes even give them freedom. And so some prisoners actually come home to Athens having survived. I mean, your survival rate here, of the men who went out on this must be 1%. And they thank Euripides, telling him that his lines of poetry secured them food and even freedom. Pretty cool. And then finally, news reaches Athens in a very odd way, and we're left with this tragedy just sort of like the curtain goes down and we're all just sort of left hanging in the balance with we're still in the middle of this war. Athens seems to have been utterly defeated. Nicias is dead, and it just ends. Like Plutarch doesn't reflect on much of anything except that the Athenians can't accept the reports when they reach them. Apparently, a man arrives in Athens, sits down for a haircut, and just starts talking about the disaster at Syracuse and how all the Athenians died, and they're all in stone quarries, and wow, isn't that so terrible? As if it's common knowledge. And the barber runs to the agora, to the marketplace, with this news, right? And the archons call an assembly, and... There's an uproar, right, because it was just so hard for the people to give credence to what Nicias had essentially prophesied all the way to the end. Even after it has occurred, the Athenians think, no, this can't be. It has to have worked out some other way. 
So, the tragedy of Nicias ends. Thanks for listening. We're really in the middle of the story here, so we'll pick up with Alcibiades next month. And Alcibiades brings us to a little bit of closure, not a happy closure, but at least the closure of the war and a a clear idea of what happens there. Lysander does too, um, bring us to that a little more clearly. And then we see it from the Spartan perspective where the entire time that Sparta is attacking Athens, they're learning and adapting and getting better. And they're taking advantage of all of the Athenian mistakes to eventually outwit and outlast the Athenians and be on top again in a way that they haven't been since before the Persian Wars. So we'll cover all that in the next few episodes. Thanks so much for the download. Thanks so much for listening, following along. As you're seeing probably that Plutarch's lives, they do give the lives of these individual men. They come to life and you understand their character and their motivations and the the difficulties that they went through. But you also are really beginning to understand the character and the motivations and the difficulties that the Athenian people go through in the 5th century. We're really beginning to see a biography of something bigger than just the five or six men, Athenian men, that we have studied so far. So I hope that's really exciting and I want to draw out some of the parallels and lessons there at the end of this season when we finish probably Agesilaus or maybe Pelopidas. I'm not exactly sure yet where I'm going to end this season. But if you're getting anything out of the podcast, please leave me a rating or review. And any other ideas for the podcast, feedback, anything you want to tell me, you can always shoot me an email, tom at grammaticus.co. Until next time, this is Tom Cox from grammaticus.co, hoping that I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives influence yours. Mm